Uh, John chapter 9, uh, I want to read the whole story. It goes from verses 1 to 41, and I'm going to try and read it uh, somewhat quickly, um, beginning in verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought the man to the Pharisees, the man who had been born blind, been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. <clears throat> the Jews still, still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was a Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. <coughs> then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. 
<clears throat> Some of the uh, most faithful members of this congregation and in, in other churches uh, have contracted terrible diseases, and in some cases uh, it has taken their lives. Why, we might ask, there are some children here in this church, very special children, but severely disabled. We might ask why, why would would that be the case? John Owen was a Puritan theologian. You may not be familiar with that name, but he became the vice chancellor of Oxford University in the middle of the 1600s. He was the chaplain to Oliver Cromwell. He married his adoring wife, Mary Rook. She gave birth to 11 children, 10 of whom died in infancy. Only one survived, and that child survived a a girl until she was 25 or 26 years of age, and then she died. Why, uh, we might ask. Bad things happen to God's people and to the Lord's people and to the best of Christ's disciples. Why? Why why do things like this happen? Uh, The discussion surrounding that is described with a term called theodicy. Are you familiar with that term? It's spelled T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, theodicy. Theodicy is the attempt to justify the ways of God with men and women, to try to answer the why question. That's to engage in theodicy. That's what this chapter is about. That's what this discussion is around this man who was born blind. Let me tell you what's happening around this, uh, this event. In the previous chapter, chapter 8, that's the chapter where the religious leaders called the scribes, they were like the Jewish lawyers of the day, and the Pharisees, that was a particular subgroup of uh, religious leaders. That chapter tells us about when they brought a woman caught in adultery to Jesus And they said that the law of Moses demanded death by stoning for anyone caught in adultery. And that's when Jesus replied, let the one who is without sin be the first to cast the first stone. Then in chapter 8, he goes to the temple and he preaches. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. At that point, the Pharisees call Jesus a liar. I mean, they are really angry. They are really angry at him. At the end of chapter 8, toward the end, he says to the religious leaders, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. They say to him, who are you? And Jesus said, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I mean, that's some pretty strong words. It is really getting tense between Jesus and these religious leaders. But it reaches a point where the tension goes through the roof at the end of chapter 8. And that's when they're ready to kill Jesus. And they begin to make plans to do that because they realize he's claiming to be God. Now we come to chapter 9, to this event. And I like to look at this uh, event with this blind man in four scenes. There are four clear scenes that it goes through. And the first scene is Jesus meeting the blind man. Now, we understand John points out that it was a Sabbath day, and that's very important. The Jewish Sabbath at that time was the last day of the week, what we call Saturday. 
And there had always been a controversy with the Pharisees about the Sabbath day and Jesus' attitude toward the Sabbath day. That was the flashpoint in his ministry with them. And in this event, it is almost as though Jesus is going out of his way to do something to provoke them. And John points that out, that this was on the Sabbath day. Second uh, is the conversation about the blind man's condition. And that's still part of scene one. But what happens here is a conversation that begins with Jesus' followers. A question. A question about the man's condition. Uh, In ancient cultures, as in many modern cultures, blind people have no choice but to be beggars. I mean, there's, there's no option. There's no government welfare. There's no disability insurance. Uh, This man was, we can assume, very poor, and he's begging by the roadside. And so Jesus sees him as he he passes by. Maybe he spoke to him. We don't know. Now, but what we do know is the disciples began to talk about the man's condition because they would have assumed that blindness was a punishment for sin. People around the world think that way. We think that way, don't you? We may not say it, but if you have bad things happen to you, you're probably thinking, well, God's getting me. He's coming by. I didn't do what I, you know, I didn't, you know. Somehow or another, I I disobeyed. That was the theology of the friends, friends that came to Job in the book of Job. That was their theodicy, justifying God's ways with our understanding. And sometimes our suffering is a result of sin. If, if, if you go out and, uh, and become drunk and get behind the wheel of a car and, and smash that car into a tree and break numerous bones in your body, I think you would probably say, uh, you know, boy, my pain and suffering is a result of my sin. But most of the time it's not that clear. So I'm not trying to say it's never the result of our sin. I mean, we can, we can take courses of action that endanger us and others and Sometimes very bad things happen because of our actions. But that's not the point here with, with what's, what's happening. The disciples look at this man, and they narrow everything down to one of two alternatives. Either this man's sin, and therefore God made him blind, or his parents' sin. So those are the two choices that they give Jesus. That's basically the extent of their question. So he's a philosophical question. Um, they're thinking what caused his blindness. But Jesus immediately shifts the conversation from the cause of the blindness to the purpose for the blindness. That's where Jesus goes with the conversation immediately. He doesn't even waste any time talking about uh, the cause. He's not going to deal with who's at fault in this condition. He's going to talk about what's the purpose behind the condition. Now, I I have a variety of... uh, study Bibles. I hope you have study Bibles. If, if you are just learning to study the Bible, that's probably the best place to start, is buy a good study Bible. I like study Bibles that were not composed by one person. I like those like the New International Study Bible or others that have a, a committee of editors and public, you know, uh, authors so that you get, a, I think, a more balanced view on some of the notes that come with them. But that's a good place to start with a study Bible. Then you can go on to commentaries, and a very helpful, very brief uh, commentary is a life application commentary. And about this passage, here's what's said in the life application commentary. It says, how can God work in a desperate situation? There may be times when we have done everything possible to solve a problem. 
After we've explored the options, after we've exhausted our resources, after we have probed our motives, after we have asked for advice, after we've done what was suggested, we may find that nothing has changed. (laughs) The problem is just the way it was when we started. We may have persisted in prayer. We may have asked others to pray for us, and yet we get no answer, at least none we know of. The truth is, they go on to say, the solution, the resolution, or the answer may not ever come in this life. But it is also true that regardless of our difficulty and whether or not our burden is removed, God is at work. And now they give some observations about how God is at work. One, God may use our experience to help advise and encourage others who pass through the same trials. Second, God may use your suffering to break through the hardness of another person and bring about change in them. Third, God may use our unresolved need to motivate others to keep searching for a solution from which others will benefit. Fourth, God may use our endurance and suffering rather than the suffering itself to be an encouraging example to, uh, to other believers. Now, I came to Christ through a presentation of the four spiritual laws. Y'all familiar with that? It was, used to be the most widely disseminated evangelistic booklet in history, written by Bill Bright back in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Well, law one, according to the booklet, said God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Well, it doesn't take long to realize wonderful does not necessarily mean pain-free. We typically, if you went to the dentist and they said, how was it? And you said, wonderful. I don't think you'd use an adjective like that, perhaps, to describe But that doesn't necessarily mean pain-free. The process may be quite painful, but the purpose or the end result is wonderful. That's why in Romans 8.28 it says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 does not say all things which happen to us are good, but that God causes them to work together for good. Some of those things are downright terrible. Uh, And we use the term bad, meaning painful and terrible and yield no good that we can see, even acknowledging God's control over those. Y'all may not remember the name of Chet Bitterman. When Barbara and I lived, uh, when I was in graduate school at seminary, we were uh, in a small church plant at that time, and Chet Bitterman served with Wycliffe Bible Translators, and he was kidnapped. And, and ransom was demanded, which was never paid. But our congregation joined with many, many, many other congregations in praying for the release of Chet Bitterman. This went on for months. Well, he was not released, and the day finally came, and uh, the, the kidnappers, they killed him because the ransom was never paid. Uh, and so our prayers seemingly went unanswered. He left a a wife and small children, from what I remember. So his release was not to be. It was a terrible thing. But do you know the next year, applications to serve with Wycliffe translators doubled the following year? Now, I wouldn't go any further than that, personally, if I was trying to make sense of this. But we often don't know what the end result will be with our pain and suffering and how it might impact others. 
Okay, we're still in scene one. We're going to go quickly through the others. But Jesus, let me tell you about Jesus' response to the question. Was it this man who sinned, therefore he was born blind, or was it his parents? Jesus adds a third option. He says it's for the glory of God. So some of your suffering, like the trials of Job, are for God's glory, either through the resulting refinement or through a spectacular healing, as in here. There is no link, Jesus is saying, between this man's blindness and sin. Now, we need to hear that. I mean, God, I still think we just, our default setting is bad things happen, God's getting me for something I did. Jesus is saying there is no correlation between sin and this man's blindness. He's more concerned, Jesus is more concerned with the question, how can God be glorified in this difficult situation? Wouldn't it be great to adopt a viewpoint wouldn't it be great to be so mature in your faith in Christ to where when bad things happen to you, your immediate response is, how can God be most glorified in this? I can only imagine being at that point. Um, so Jesus explained this man's blindness had nothing to do with his sin or his parents. Now, scene two, and that's the healing of the man. Let's move on to the good part, verses 6 to 12. I won't reread it. Jesus spits on the ground. We don't know why, why he chose to do it this way and tells him to go wash in the Siloam. We don't know. That's not explained. He just told us what happened. The Pool of Siloam was a real place. It was built by King Hezekiah. We can, the, the workers had built an underground tunnel to bring water in from outside the city of Jerusalem. The tunnel channeled the water inside this pool, inside the city walls. And so he goes there. Verse 7 says he goes there and he washes and he came back seeing. Just imagine his excitement. They've stressed that he was born blind. This was not cataracts that occurred just in the latter part of his life. I mean, it was, he had never seen. I read of Anna Mae Penica. She was a 62-year-old woman who was born blind. And the Chicago Sun-Times carried a story that had originally been printed in the Los Angeles Times about her. At age 47, she married a man she met in a Braille class. And then for 15 years of marriage, he did the seeing for both of them since he, he could see. And then he lost his vision to a disease. So now they're both blind. Ms. Penica had never seen the colors of spring or the colors of fall like we see now. She had grown up with a very supportive, loving family, so she had never really felt resentful of her condition. And they said she had a remarkably cheerful demeanor all the time. But then a Dr. Thomas Pettit of the Jules Stein Eye Institute at UCLA performed surgery on her to remove the rare congenital cataracts from the lens of her left eye. And for the first time at age 62, she saw. <laughs> the newspaper account did not give her initial response, but it did say that when she began to see, she, quote, found everything so much bigger and brighter than she ever imagined. She immediately recognized her husband, and she also could recognize people she had known well just by seeing them. She knew who they were. But she said other people were either taller or shorter or heavier or skinnier than she had pictured them for her whole life. It said since that, when I read this, it said since that day, Mrs. Penica has hardly been able to wake up each morning, splash her eyes with water, 
put on her glasses and enjoy the changing morning light. Her vision is almost 20 30. It, it was good enough to pass a driver's test. <laughs> well, the response of this man, what's interesting is the family and friends, the friends and neighbors, I guess I should say. Some begin to say he looks like the guy who used to be blind, but it can't be. Remember the old story of the guy who's convinced he's dead? And, every, and he, he always told everybody he was dead, and he finally went to a counselor. The counselor's trying to convince the man he's alive, but the guy can't be convinced. And so he said, do you believe that dead people bleed? And he said, no. And so the counselor poked it, pricked him with a needle, and his finger began to bleed. And he said, well, now what do you think? And he said, well, what do you know? Dead people do bleed. <laughs> you know? They look at this guy, and it's him. Same, same voice, same person, same clothes, but they're saying it can't be. It can't be him. And he says, I am the man. He's insisting. He's going around saying, it's me. It is me. Finally, realizing that the person who once was blind had received their sight, they began saying, well, how then did this happen? How were your eyes opened? And the man tells about this one who he recounts had, had healed him. All right, now we go to scene three. Okay, scene one was meeting the man. Scene two was the healing of the man. Now we come where things get rather dark, and that's the man before the Pharisees, verses 13 and following. And it focuses on the Sabbath issue. These guys had a fixation about the Sabbath. And for them, Jesus was destroying the Sabbath. The Pharisees saw themselves as the guardian of God's law. And for the Pharisees, it boiled down to a simple question about the Sabbath, and that is what I cannot do. <laughs> what we are not allowed to do on the Sabbath. They were consumed with that question. And there were many, many, many things. There were close to 700 specific applications of the Sabbath law from the Ten Commandments that they had come up with. You could travel only so, many, so much of a distance on the Sabbath. You were not to look into a mirror on the Sabbath. A woman was not because she, would, she might see a, a uh, white hair or gray hair and be tempted to pull it, which they said would violate the Sabbath based on harvesting. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous when you read these things of what you could or could not do. Now, one thing you could not do was heal. You could not heal on the Sabbath. You also could not make bread on the Sabbath, among many, many other things. So, Jesus comes along, and he's pouring joy into the Sabbath. Remember, they're already mad at him from chapter 8. They're looking for an opportunity to catch him in some sin worth punishment. But verse 16 says some felt this way, others felt this way. So they're divided. Now there's parting ranks in their evaluation of Jesus. So they call his parents in verse 18. And the parents are afraid to, uh, to stand up to these guys. They don't want to be barred. When it says put out of the synagogue, that would mean excommunicated. That would mean in your, in your neighborhood where everybody knew each other and you were kicked out, that would mean you were labeled as going to hell. So this was very serious, and they did not want that to happen to them. Which is what does happen to the man as he talks with them. He's bold. He's authoritative uh, as they question him. And these are the results of being a recipient of God's grace. Um, when we receive God's grace, there's a boldness there that, that goes beyond our, our personality type. A person may be naturally timid, but when, 
God works in your heart. There can be a boldness there like this man had. It's, it's, <laughs> you cannot convince this man that uh, of something other had happened to him than a miracle. Now, when he says to them, and I'm not looking at the passage, so I don't know the verse, when he said, when he's speaking to the Pharisees and says, from the beginning of history, it's never been heard that a, a man has been uh, healed that was, or someone born blind. Don't you think he would know? He probably had done his homework best he could to find out, is there any way to heal me, you know, all through his life? By the way, it is interesting that Jesus is the only one that speaks to him besides the Pharisees, but when he's blind, the disciples are talking about him. Do you ever, uh, I hope you don't do this, but when someone's in a wheelchair, there's a temptation to talk about them and not to them. You ever done that? Been in a grocery store and there's someone pushing a wheelchair and they'll say, does he need some help? <laughs> Don't do that. You know, somehow or another, so were there a non-person. Well, that's how the blind man was to them. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Okay, scene four. Oop. All right, I got about, what, two minutes? One minute. Scene four, the final words of Jesus to the man. His eyes have been opened, his physical eyes, and now we see his spiritual eyes open. And look at the progression. Just trust me on this. In verse 11, we see a progression with the man coming to faith. In verse 11, he says, it was Jesus who healed me, though he doesn't have a clue who Jesus was or where he came from. In verse 17, under interrogation, he says the man is a prophet. In verse 22, in the conversation with the parents, he says, could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? So you see what's happening. He goes from knowing about Jesus to the man's a prophet to now he's identifying him with the Messiah. And down in verse 35, when Jesus asked him, does he believe in the Son of Man? He says, well, show me who he is. It's me. It's the one who's standing before you. And it says not only that he believes, but he worships. So we see this progression of not only, first his physical eyes were opened, but now his spiritual eyes were opened as well. Well, I've got to abruptly end right here. I do wish that we had the man's name. Isn't it interesting that we're not told his name? It's a long account, 41 verses. And in many other miracles, we have the person's name. I think there's a reason. I mean, it would have been nice to look down and say, Bubba or Billy Bob, you know, they brought him to Jesus to see what. But nothing, if it had been from the southern part, it would have had a double name, you know. Uh, uh, I, think it's a, I don't think John gave us his name because I think he wants us to put our name right there. I think he wants us to see ourselves in this story. It's written to underline that God has a purpose in this. No one can tell you what the purpose is in your suffering. No person, no pastor, no... But sometimes the purpose is salvation itself. Uh, And it's like John is saying, what are you going to do with this man? What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with someone who can heal a blind man? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this actually happened. We thank you for Christ who not only heals of physical eyes but also spiritual eyes. We thank you that he came to pay the debt of uh, death and uh, for our sin and that through him we can have life with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.